You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Shona, live from the 2018 CancerCon, and I'm so fortunate to be speaking with Matthew Zachary the founder and CEO of Stupid Cancer, the organization that hosts CancerCon every year. Matthew, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It is my pleasure. First, congrats on hosting the 11th annual CancerCon. It <laughs> hasn't been that long. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah, uh, it started in 2008 with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, which is just an extraordinary out-of-the-blue relationship that, literally out-of-the-blue, and it's a terrible privilege to host an event of this size, importance, and magnitude after all these years. Yeah, it's an amazing conference. It's my second one, and I get so much out of being here as a healthcare professional. Yeah. So let's start off. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your story and how you came to found Stupid Cancer? I was a classically trained film composer, concert pianist by the age of 21. I started training at the age of 11. I grew up in New York City. And I went to undergraduate to study film, television, music, with a minor in sociology and computer science, because I was bored. I'm totally kidding. I was stressed out of my gourd. And I had applied to USC film school. I had put to many film schools in the summer of 95. I had my dreams and my goals and, you know, what 21-year-old knows what they want to do with the rest of their life. And I got accepted to several schools, and I chose that I was going to go here. The deposit was down, working on whatever the logistics were with my dad and my mom. And during that summer, my left hand started to feel weird. So I kind of ignored it because I was a stupid kid, which is fine. You can be a stupid kid. No offense to 21-year-olds listening to this (laughs) audio right now. And... I went to the campus doctors and I went to the local doctors and they kept telling me that I had like the flu or carpal tunnel syndrome or a mini stroke or multiple sclerosis. One of them told me I had Epstein-Barr, which has nothing to do with fine motor coordination in your left hand. And uh, I wound up not being able to play with my left hand and I was compensating just because you can't see this on the audio, but I'm moving my hands back and forth like I'm playing piano. I I just compensated for what I was able to do without even thinking I shouldn't have to 
do this. Right. And I'm also a lefty, so I couldn't grip a pen or a pencil. I was having my friends sign my credit card receipts and using my laptop because I'm a geek and I had <laughs> a laptop in 1995. So I was typing with my right hand. And this is weird. My friends are like, what's wrong with you? I don't know, but this is weird. And then finally, after all those months and months of being told, it's in your head, it was in my head. Literally. Literally. <laughs> I wound up having a, a fainting spell, and then my speech started slurring. So I went home over Thanksgiving break to see my primary, and then I told my parents, Dad, Mom, I think there's something wrong with me. And they, they hit me, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why didn't you tell us months ago? We could have helped you. And I wound up having a... Um, Actually, I went back to school for two more weeks because I'm, again, a stupid kid. I'll come back in two weeks, and then I don't, I'll be nice on LLS. I won't curse. But the, 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 the bad stuff hit the fan. Right. All due respect to LLS listeners. And things got really bad. It went really south in those two weeks, and my vision went blurry. I didn't really have a seizure, but my brain started doing all these really weird things. And I wound up being able to, like, not walk so well. And my gait changed. And my left hand just completely stopped having any semblance of fine motor. So I had to be picked up and brought back home mm-hmm. when that was over. Uh, mind you, in those two weeks, I musically produced Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> I don't know how I did that in those two weeks. But got home, saw a neurologist, nothing wrong with me. Really? He said, you should go get an MRI. Get an MRI. And the kids love the story because they have no idea what I'm talking about when I use the term answering machine. <laughs> so look it up. Go to Google. So my mom and I went to the MRI. My dad worked full time. My brother was actually at Binghamton where I went because he was a freshman. And we went, got the MRI, went out to lunch afterwards and got home and there was a message on the answering machine. Look it up, kids. <laughs> And it was blinking, and we're like, that. no one calls it one in the afternoon. It's like, we need you to come back here right away. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm. Famous, next two famous last words. So we got back, and I saw a radiologist. And it's like, you have something, a mass in your brain. It's like, come again? Sorry? So then we need you to talk to our neurosurgeon tomorrow what (laughs) (laughs) like crickets right um i'm on winter break you know i gotta go back to school in three weeks and okay speed bump maybe nothing so we met with the neurosurgeon who was like the nicest person he was an orthodox jew and he met us on shabbos he met us on friday night just to give you a sense of his his character the humanity of this man and he showed us the scans and he said, you have what we think is a pilocytic astrocytoma, which is a relatively benign tumor that they felt one and done, you'll be fine, let's get you back. So, but we need to have surgery. And I know we're gonna be talking about how far we've come, mm-hmm. but back in 1996, there was no chemotherapy for brain cancer. There was no laparoscopy for brain cancer. They literally cut your skull open. Oh, man. (laughs) And this type of tumor itself was not up top, you know, on your scalp. It was in your uh, cerebellum, which if you want to do a Google biology 
study of the brain, the brain has three parts, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the medulla. The medulla connects to the spine. But the cerebellum is like this little structure underneath by the brainstem that controls coordination, balance, motor function, and autonomics. Like your kidneys and breathing and your blinking, like things that you'd never really consciously have to worry about because they just kind of happen. Right. So we need to get this out of you, and then we think it's fine. But we have to put you on this steroid, which will stop you from having your crazy, weird faintings and dizzy and eyeballs and whatever. And my mom is freaking out. My brother, everyone's freaking out. The phone calls. You know, there were no cell phones back then. We had a, a phone in the kitchen with a 30-foot cord, you know, yeah. and that was it with a rotary dial, and it just rang off the hook. And back then, there was no caller ID, you know, just you get busy signals, you hang up, it rings, you hang up, it rings. It's, we had no idea what was going on. So those two weeks between diagnosis and surgery were the weirdest two weeks of my life because I was home to spend time with my friends and work on some projects and I had a senior thesis and some music to write and it was terrible. So finally, the surgery comes along and man, that was, like I think I had a 30% chance of dying on the operating table. Oh, wow. They didn't disclose that to me. They told my parents they should have told me because I wasn't a minor. So I'm glad maybe they didn't say, you might die on the operating table because we're going into your brain with a fork through your neck. <laughs> so that's kind of how it felt. Yeah. Uh, the surgery took eight hours. And I remember waking up in neuro ICU. And I, I liked this. is If we're going to go long, I'll go long. So I had been extubated on a morphine drip overnight in neuro ICU after the surgery. And this is true. The curtain pulled back and I woke up and it was a priest with a Bible ready to read me my last rites. Wow. I'm, I'm 21. Yeah. So I did what any rational person would do that was extubated on a morphine drip right after brain surgery. I told him I was Jewish. <laughs> and he left. It worked. It worked. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could have used all the help <laughs> I could have needed back then. Bring, bring the rabbi, bring the, the, bring the, the imam. I don't care. Just show up. And anyway, I told my mom that story when she came in. And man, did she raise hell at the hospital? He just walked in the wrong room. Oh. But yeah, that was my introduction to being a cancer patient. And what an introduction! Wow. Yeah. Yeah, like, welcome to this club. But they didn't quite yet know it was cancer. They still thought it was this benign mm. thing. Um, but come to think of it, like, benign things don't really grow as fast. This went from zero to 100 in, in three months or six mm -hmm. months. Anyway, I was in the hospital for a full week. And I had never not played piano for more than, like, a day. And they couldn't, like, wheel a piano into this neuro ICU room. A week later, the pathology comes back. It's not a pilocytic astrocytoma. It is a medulloblastoma, which is a very, very rare, life-threatening, malignant brain tumor that you are born with. So I have a congenital, they're called PNED, primary neuroendocrine tumor. 
And I had that. And what? I <laughs> give this this a theme of this interview. Right. What? What? So I wasn't out of the woods. I couldn't go back to school. We had to now look at all these other things. And I just want to live my life. And can I please just go? I wound up having to not go back to school. And I couldn't play piano because my left hand wasn't working. I will say that when they took everything out of my brain, nearly all of the symptoms I was experiencing went away. But because I hadn't been able to use my left hand in gross and fine motor coordination for so many months, it was uh, it was like at, not atrophied, but it w- it couldn't flex. I had all these hand stressing exercises, but it wouldn't get me to where I knew I was playing piano prior to. So that was horrifying. And then the worst part of those moments where I had to call the grad school I wanted to go to and tell them I couldn't go. I'm sure that was devastating. My career, my my life was over, but I wasn't dying. That was what I kind of conflated it to. And then they came back with the reports that, oh, you are dying. This is the most aggressive brain cancer. Mine, I mean, glioblastoma is, but in pediatrics, medulloblastoma is, at least back then, a, a total death sentence. And the fact that it lingered inside my head all those years, that's, that's kind of creepy. Right. I look at my childhood photos, and there's a tumor in that head of that kid with the afro. A little bit of an alien possession. It almost. was really, yeah. really not okay. And so I had to go home. I had to get all this crazy prep work done. That's a book unto itself. The Between January 10th of my surgery and uh, February 15th when radiation started, that month. You know, because Valentine's Day wouldn't have been cool enough to start radiation. They waited till the day <laughs> after Valentine's Day when I realized I had no girlfriend. <laughs> so, and then radiation back then was the only real thing they could do for this cancer. Besides getting it out of you with this massive eight-hour craniotomy which I had a 70% chance of living through. And I had like a 20% chance of having like permanent brain damage from, because you can't dig into your brain with a spork and kind of come out the other end normal or quote normal. And I don't know what they did right. I had the world's most, like the gold standard world-class neurosurgeon ever. So for what that's worth, he did his job. And I came out unscathed cognitively, although I was still totally messed up from the steroids and spending six months in like this crazy state. Radiation was 33 days of a high dose. 59, if anyone knows RADS and Grays, it's 5940 CG. But they had this new technology, called, it was 3D mapping of the brain. There was a cl- clinical trial for it that I signed up for to experiment and it was like another boost of like radiation to the to the posterior fossa or like mm-hmm. the pons of the brain so went through all that hell i don't have to tell people out there how horrible mm-hmm. this is i lost 110 pounds in three months i lost all my hair except my eyebrows i don't know what deity i <laughs> I was praying to the most at that time, but I kept my eyebrows. It was kind of the only thing I had. My friends were great. My high school friends, my college friends, like who's not going to want to 
do that. I mean, and then some of them did actually say, I can't deal with this and never talk mm. to me again. Really? My family, my friends, my network were extraordinarily supportive. And they actually yelled at me because I had too many balloons and flowers in my hotel room. Literally. It's like, you can't have this here. And so the month between surgery and radiation were just terrifying. Radiation was horrible, as I said before. I was throwing up 10, 15 times a day. I couldn't hold down food. My skin was burned. I, I couldn't control my salivary glands and my saliva kind of went away. Mm. My eyes were burning. My throat swelled up. I had gastritis. I had constipation and diarrhea, which is very strange to have them. Like one day this, one day that. Seems like a contradiction. Yeah. And must have been on up to 13 meds mm. to counteract all the other stuff, and nothing worked. Mm. And I think where this all goes is I, I didn't know how alone I was because it would have been nice to have connected with or even known someone else that wasn't 80 right. was going through this or had gone through this. And when you don't know what you need or what you didn't know was out there, you have no baseline. So anyway, I survived the surgery. I did graduate from from school. I did not get to go to grad school. And I had no, now I can say, you know, uh, I lost my life, but I didn't die. Career, all my friends went off to grad school. I was home alone in my bed with nothing to do. I couldn't really play as well. I mean, I, was, I started to play again, but it took me to jump ahead five years to self-rehab. And one might think that a 21-year-old concert pianist being treated at I won't say their name, but the preeminent cancer treatment center of New York City would have been told about physical therapy or occupational therapy for their hands, and I was not. I'd like to think that is attributable to the fact that the 90s sucked in general. And if that is, then that is. With the MC Hammer Pants and Friends and ER <laughs> uh, nonstop. So my dad said to me, you know, lovingly by the fall. I was really trying to just walk and eat. And so it took me forever to even have like like a chocolate bar. I couldn't even swallow mm. anything. I was on liquid diets. And these were the days before Ensure was a thing. So like ice cream shakes. I'd go to like Carvel or whatever and just get an ice cream shake and keep that down for a little while. And that was it. So my dad said, in no small terms, if you're going to die, die employed. <laughs> if you know my dad. And he, I, he met the, I, I met your dad. You met him. So yeah, Mayor yeah, Lou. Yeah. I met him. Um, and uh, I got a job. I just, I mean, millennials hate this story. I got a job in two days. Sorry. Yeah, millennials will hate that. <laughs> two days. I clipped out the times, called the place, got the job. You know, 1996. And I wound up creating a whole new life for myself at an ad agency when no one knew who I was. I could be the bald guy that they just thought was trendy and shaved his head. I could wear a hat. I was still very sick, but no one cared. Like I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to be vulnerable. And I had tremendous self-inadequacy going into this. But this job gave me a chance to reinvent myself. I wound up spending 10 years in advertising took me five years to rehab myself. I met a girl who I wound up marrying. Her brother was sick with cancer when I met her. 
So our baggage negated itself. And we were like, all right, whatever. Your brother's dying, I'm dying, whatever. Let's go on a date. I wound up throwing a uh, five-year cancerversary party because remission back then was five years. Five years. And- you, you were not cancer-free, even if you were, until five years, mm-hmm. which is still arbitrary and, and stupid. So, and after that, I kind of just flotsomed. I had a job, I had a girlfriend, and whatever. But everything really changed in 2003 when I was approached by a gentleman named Craig Lustig, who was getting his MPH at Columbia in New York City. And we were on the same brain tumor listserv. Because back when they were, look it up, kids, listservs. (laughs) With our AOL dial-ups and our (laughs) modems. You're laughing. I remember it when I, you know, using my dad's computer. Yep, 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 with the clackities, with the clackity keys. And Craig was like, I want to know you. I had brain cancer in college. And I'm 10 years older than you, but I want to know you. So we agreed to meet with him and his friend Stacia at the Soho Hotel in 2003. And he was the very first human being I had ever met in, what is that, seven years that had cancer in their 20s. Even teens or 30, I wouldn't have cared. And when I realized that, I got, are we the only people in the country? You and me? He's like, no. And he took me on this path that I never thought would be possible. He happened to be a lobbyist in D.C. for children's cancer. He worked for an organization called the Children's Cause for Cancer Advocacy. And he was on the board of directors for the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, which is the gold standard D.C. group for policy change. Mm-hmm. And it was like the Wizard of Oz curtain pulled back. And this whole cottage industry of upstart, rapscallion, breakfast club. Look it up, kids, the breakfast club. People were trying to disrupt cancer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this came out of these boring policy reports from the NCI and the CDC around if more people don't die what happens to them and then a report came out about young adults and I had no idea that young adults outside of the young adult novels like that was the only context I had for those two words in succession the young adult novel section of Barnes and Noble right right (laughs) but young adult cancer isn't a thing there's pediatric and there's cancer This was the first report that actually put those words in that succession. And it was groundbreaking. I actually read it. I might have been the only person that read a government public health document. But it talked about how outcomes and the the nerdy outcomes, like did you live or die, not the quality of life Mm -hmm. stuff. That outcomes for young adults in between 15 and 39 had not improved in 30 years when compared to how much progress has been made in peds and boomers. And that just pissed me off. Like, so if I get cancer, again now, 10 years out, eight years out, seven years out, I'm gonna go through the same crap. The next me will go through the same crap. And I didn't know I needed a friend. I didn't know I needed Craig. Mm -hmm. The next me should know Craig's there, the dairy diagnosed. Like it was such a logical way to think about how is this even a problem? 
And that's when I joined Livestrong for their Young Adult Alliance kickoff. And I met even more of my earliest mentors and friends who helped give birth to me. And it was that's when I decided I want to create an organization. I didn't have any nonprofit experience. I just didn't want to throw my own money in there, but I wound up doing that. And who's going to donate to this kid? Don't start a charity. Don't ever start a charity. You take one thing away from this interview. Hashtag, don't start a charity. But I went back to my advertising friends because I was slowly exiting that career and getting sort of thrust into this advocacy world. And I didn't even know what advocacy meant. But if it meant Craig should be either the day you're diagnosed, fine, that's advocacy for me. And I said, I want to build a brand because I worked on Pepsi and Dodge and Frito-Lay and whatever, all M&M's, Texaco. I was the IT media person for those brands. I was like, what's a cancer brand? You know, there was Livestrong, which is a fairly good brand, well-funded. And I never felt like I belonged in their community. I like the idea of being part of this young adult initiative, but I'm not athletic. Mm-hmm. I don't ride a bike. And I, I just didn't jive with the brand culture. Right. And then everything else was about your body parts. The breast cancer group, the colon cancer group, the lung cancer group. The There wasn't even a brain tumor group. So I wanted to create Festivus, the cancer organization for the rest of us. (laughs) That was the fundamental thinking. It was around the idea that it's really okay to be pissed. This isn't about flowers and you'll be fine, wristbands and ribbons and Mm -hmm. run walks and galas and vodka luges and all that crap. Like, we're just angry and we're Gen X and no one cares that we Mm -hmm. get sick. And it... Fast forward 11 years, we're the leader now in young adult cancer advocacy. We're the largest curation group for academic research, for engagement. We produce hundreds of live events around the country every year, including CancerCon as the grand poobah every single year. Our social media, our digital content, we're on YouTube, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes. Instagram, I follow you on Instagram. Yeah, I, the Instagram channel, I'm too old for that. I cut my <laughs> losses and have a team running that for me, which is great. I know your limits, know myself. <laughs> and we're just so proud to be a voice and have so many other wonderful organizations in our space working with us. And they're all here at CancerCon exhibiting. We have 50-some-odd nonprofits here. Yeah. And this has become a real movement and it's a, I said terrible privilege before, but it really is a terrible privilege to carry the mantle for 72,000 people a year getting diagnosed. And just to put this in reference of population, there are 1.4 million Americans who are young adult cancer survivors. Wow. One and a half, nearly one and a half million Americans are under 40 and had cancer under 40. And nearly 400,000 of them are long-term pediatric the kids that don't die, 80, 85% of the kids that, that make it. And as tragic as it is that there are losses, we do look at how people are now living. They may pass, not immediately. And that's what those reports were talking about. Like if people are going to be living with cancer, we're extending life. What do we do with all these people that should be given the same dignity as if they weren't sick? Yeah. And that was the fundamental premise behind 
creating this company is liberty, pursuit of happiness, choice, dignity, and your right to know that there are age-appropriate resources that you can take advantage of to get busy living. Uh, that's wonderful. That is that is so wonderful to hear. I haven't done long form in a long time. <laughs> I miss a lot of stuff, but like that's that's the origin. It was born of the community that didn't know it needed it. Right. And it has become what I wished I had 22 years ago. The club that no one wants to be a member of. But once you're here, you're family. <laughs> so since Stupid Cancer's inception, since you've been spearheading this movement, what's been your proudest moment? I typically like to jump to the, the big media exposures because it, it, it's never really about me or, the, or, or, or anything else. It's like when you can get 80 million people to read Newsweek, when you're on the cover of Newsweek, and we have at least 50 attendees here at CancerCon 2018 who are only here because they read about it in Newsweek, mm. that's a point of pride. But if I really, but that's media. If I had to, and this is a very difficult question to answer, I would say my proudest moment would be when we came up with the game-changing idea of stupid cancer on your mobile device in 2013 five years ago we realized that wayne gretzky always says you should skate where the puck is going to be the puck was going to be on your mobile device in five years and we knew that cancer advocacy support peer matching all that stuff that was done in a very analog fashion on the phone whatever should be on your your cell phone and from an innovation perspective, disruption, I'm most proud of our ideas at that time, which have completely paved the way to how we're revolutionizing patient content, relationships, networking, community today mm -hmm. on a global scale. I would say when we moved the conference from New York to Las Vegas in 2012, huge point of pride because that's when it became global mm -hmm. destination. 800 people out of the woodwork. What an opportunity to change the world. That was a point of pride. And when I hired my first employee, Kenny Kane, in 2010, you know you made it when you're more than yourself. Yeah. But then, of course, like seeing 800 people, 600 people, 500, seeing the crowd, seeing the impact. And I live inside the Apple Corps. I don't get to be in the real world. And when I see... Cancer Con, and I go to these communities, and it's so. It reminds me of how much better things are today, and you know we, we like to say that we make young adult cancer suck less. That can mean different things to different people, but if just one more person knows Craig, the day they're diagnosed or when they're ready to know that there's a Craig for them, that's better. We think that's better. Yeah, and you, you've had such a huge part in, in you know, making this what it is. So. Yeah. Being at this conference this weekend, one of the themes that I keep seeing and hearing from people is this issue of survivorship, this issue of you know, just because you're, you're done with treatment and you're this arbitrary you know, five-year remission, it doesn't mean that it's over. Your life is always going to be a little bit different. There's survivorship issues, you know, long-term survivorship issues, family, going back to work mental health issues. Yep. So can you speak to, you're, you've been a survivor for quite a few many years now. So. Very, <laughs> thankfully, a very long time. Um, so, you know, what, what does survivorship mean to you? 
So I look at, at cancer used to be a death sentence, mm -hmm. but now it's a life sentence. And you're always going to have to figure out what your identity is in the wake of it. And you can choose to put it away, put it in the background, never happen. You can choose to be an activist and run to the hills and shout from the rooftops. Or you can just choose to understand how do you make the most of it. But it's all about choice. The theme of this conference, we're moving into this new way of thinking about survivorship as rehabilitation. Rehab never really ends until you decide you're ready to move on and that's on your terms. So survivorship is a really, really wonky academic term that I hate. And a lot of people don't know the history lesson here is that it used to be called cancer rehabilitation. Mm. Throughout the 1990s, the Cancer Control Act of 1996 guaranteed cancer rehabilitation. Really? Yes. And I mentioned the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship as part of my sort of onboarding into this universe. That was founded by and run by a, a woman named Ellen Stovall, who recently passed. Ellen became one of my earliest mentors. Ellen is the reason that act had rehabilitation in it. It would not have happened if not for her on the House floor yelling at legislators. So it's unfortunate, or fortunate as you want to see it, that rehabilitation got co-opted by drug abuse and opioids. Mm. So no one ever really said cancer rehab, because it, especially in today's climate with the opioid addictions, but I'm bringing it back. Because if you, if you use the whole word rehabilitation, there's a different context to it. So survivorship is the consequence of treatment and cure. Mm -hmm. That when the doctor says you're cured, go home, or you'll be fine, go home, or come back in six months, or you're gonna live with this, you know, go home, it's never the end. It could be the beginning, and it really is rehabbing yourself back to what you are comfortable with being as close to what it was, and knowing it'll never be the same. Mm -hmm. Or it could be, and that's how you decide to live. Survivorship means making choices that are right for you and on your terms to live how you feel is best for you. It's an end of one. Mm -hmm. No one can tell you what that is for you. But to help you get to that point, we want to make sure that you at least know that there are support communities and resources and tools and programs to get you there. And it's about what matters most to you. You have to ask that question. What is the most important thing to you? I just want to spend more time at home with my kids. I want to get back to work. I want to paint again. I want to play piano again. No one asks those questions. So we can't ever know what you want to get back to doing or help you figure out what that path is. And whether you're living with chronic disease and metastatic cancer, or whether you're out of the blue and you think you're done and you're afraid of relapsing and anxiety and every headache's a brain tumor, it's all about choice. So survivorship is how you choose to get busy living. And with all the survivorship issues, you know, young adults, have such very specific issues that you know they have to deal with. You know, going back to work, they they might have 30 years left of their career versus you know someone diagnosed with cancer at 65. <clears throat> going back to school and you know having a family, fertility, and I know that fertility or loss thereof is a huge issue for you know, young adults. And I know you have beautiful twins. I've seen the pictures; they're adorable. They cost me a fortune. <laughs>
So do you have anything to say about that to our listeners, about fertility and, and the issues that go along with that? Yeah, the umbrella of all that is why young adults? What's so special about young Nothing is special. It's different. And I've had so many people come up and say, well, I'm 53. It kind of was terrible for me. I'm like, sorry, you are at a different life space. And these people are in a different life space. I always like to quote a friend of mine who has thankfully, you know, gotten through his treatments that this is a time in your life when you're supposed to be taking 10 steps forward every day and you take 10 steps back. It's hard enough to be in college, in high school, just getting your first job out there, going on the dating scene, maybe thinking of raising a family, maybe buying a house. It's hard enough. It definitely is. And when you throw cancer on that lifestyle, on that life cycle, on that generationality, you realize that it is very different. When you're 60, you may not be concerned about having children, unless you're Tony Randall. Look it up, guys. He was fathered at 73. You may not be concerned about going back to school, getting your first job, you know, talking about your insurance, but you're on Medicaid or Medicaid expansion, whatever that is. This is about age appropriateness and life cycle. So we look at what are the ten poles of how cancer affects this age group first. And obviously mental health is top of mind. Isolation, fear, anxiety, recurrence, period, done. But then we look at the practical issues that are unique to this group and insurance, being underinsured, employment. And then we look at the alternative solutions and challenges and which is like parenthood. You have body parts below the belt that work, and they should work, and that's the time when they do work, and that shouldn't be a thing that doesn't work because you have cancer. So we look at fertility as the real, I won't say human rights narrative, but it really is the liberty narrative of this generation, and I'm a card-carrying, Kool-Aid-drinking poster child for this. I was fortunate enough to bank my sperm. My mom did drive me to the sperm bank, not awkward, but I still managed to produce and it was really weird. But at the time, those are not covered by insurance. It costs me 1800 bucks a year out of pocket to keep them frozen. I preserved them from 1996 to 2009, so do your math. Wow. And then IVF with my children, and now I have to spend a quarter million dollars per child to bring them into reality. It's a privilege to be able to say that. But for women, it's very different. I'm not going to say banking your sperm while you think you're dying is easy, but it's, it's different easy than being a woman. And we did the first ever NCI, NCI funded IRB approved study recruitment study on how many women are told at point of care whether their chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, whatever, will could potentially make them infertile. And if it would, here's what you can do. Out of 100% of women, it's like a family feud, you know, 13% reported back that they felt informed. That is unacceptable. That is yeah. mortifyingly unacceptable. Yeah. And up until we did this study, there really were no baselines to know this. So fertility is a true tentpole of how young adult cancer is different. Right. 
and we talk about the liberty of parenthood. Not a right. You don't have to be a parent. You know, you could choose to be a parent, but that choice should not be taken away from you by a system that doesn't inform you of those objective situations. So what can we do in the young adult space to improve more than 13% of women? Every woman with any cancer anywhere should be told if there's a risk. And here is an opportunity to do egg harvesting or OSI preservation or embryo banking. If you have a partner, you know, and it doesn't happen. So I'm, I'm overwhelmingly passionate about that one specific part of this mission is to guarantee the liberty of choice for motherhood for the 45,000 women a year diagnosed in their fertile years. And one might say, oh, that's not a lot of people. It, it matters to the people that care about them right? and to the children that could exist and that it shouldn't be up to a system to determine whether you can be a biological mom or a dad. Right. Wow. I am just in absolute shock as you're hearing yeah. the statistics. But the fact that we have that data is a byproduct of how far we've come with this movement to restore dignity and equity to an entire generation that just didn't have any. Right. So, you know, on that same note, speaking of how far we've come and, you know, we are moving forward every day. Um, so you were diagnosed in 1996. So how might it be different now for someone diagnosed today? What has, in, in the last 20 years, <clears throat> technology, you know, different resources, what is it like now being diagnosed versus when you were diagnosed? One could argue the pros and cons and the over-under of social media <laughs> very elegantly or maybe not so elegantly. Social media has become something that we need to use as a tool and not as a solution. There is definite value. Again, choice. What is going to be right for you in where you want to hang your hat and share your story or join people or just lurk. Lurking is fine. Not creepy lurking. Just <laughs> general cancer lurking is fine. Some people want to write. There were no blogs 20 years ago. You wrote, you wrote you know, on a napkin at a restaurant or a library. You know, the ability to have your voice heard today is exponentially bigger than it was back then. But that can be a pro and a con. Mm -hmm. I would say from a academic perspective, the National Cancer Institute has young adult cancer research pillars. That alone is extraordinary. Back even 11 years ago, it wasn't even a category. I can't tell you how many clinics are trying to start a, quote, young adult cancer program, end quote, when there's no standard for them. But the very fact that they're seeing a need that, that, that wasn't seen 10 years ago is so important. I would look at how organizations like, like ours with large communities can do recruitment for research studies that improve outcomes, mental health, connectivity, sense of self, purpose, parenting. Um, for young adults. These these exist now. You know, there's never been a young adult study, but now there's dozens of young adult studies. There are young adult research conferences, not like a cancer concept patient conference, but there are medical conferences. There are journals for young adult cancer. There are going to be subspecialty trainings in young adult cancer. Oh. This is a real sea change, and we've come in just 10 years. We've moved the needle more on standards of care, best practices, guidelines, whether they're followed or not, hashtag fertility, mm -hmm. 
but it's real progress that you can put your finger on. And it's moved at a pace that's like 100x where we come from since the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it's always the next generation that really wants to make that difference. And I believe that Gen X and millennials are really forcing the hand of change. And we might be making the system a little uncomfortable, but why not? We want to live right. on our terms. Yeah, I feel like I could talk about this with you all afternoon, but we are running a little short on time. Is there any parting words of wisdom you would like to leave with our audience at LLS? I'm a huge Billy Joel nerd, and even long before I got sick. So I'm six, we're on the cross-country trip around, the, and Glass Houses, look it up, is playing nonstop in the cassette deck, and I, I just grew up with Billy Joel. And every single concert he's ever had that I've ever been to, no matter what, he always concludes with, and you're going to beep this, but I want to say it, <laughs> don't take any from anyone. There you go. That's wonderful advice. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here on this podcast with us this afternoon. I'm sure you're going to have a busy rest of the weekend <laughs> at CancerCon. Um, yes. Good luck. I mean, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time. <laughs>